This is Pain Information Network. Well, it's a Surgeon General Redemption in More on Marijuana. Well, welcome back. And uh, the topic today is going to be on just those things. And the reason I want to talk about the Surgeon General's letter is it's going to potentially affect access to care. I don't think it's going to immediately do it. I don't think that's the intention of the letter. I don't think that uh, it was sent to us for anything other than educational and informational purposes. But, you know, perception is everything. And sometimes when you see an unprecedented letter like this come in the mail, and for whatever reason, and it's uh, sent to all physicians, all physicians in the country, you got to kind of stand up and take notice because this uh, is a statement. These are the feds. These are the same people that give us our uh, DEA certificates so we can prescribe. And I think it's well-meaning, and I think it's directed in the right way. But it's just a one-page letter and a little insert, and they use the CDC guidelines. Now, we talked about the CDC guidelines, this uh, 50 morphine milligram equivalent per day as moderate to heavy and then 90 as heavy. That's fairly arbitrary. And it's starting to really get some traction. I've noticed in the community, I'm hearing it more and more, that those numbers really mean something. In other words, they're taking on a life of their own. I think it therefore it is. You're going to hear me say that many times. When the CDC guidelines were developed, they were primarily developed for the purpose of guidance to primary care. Well, I'm a specialist, and recently, and I'll tell you a little story. I got a phone call from a, a group that has been around for over 20 years, and they were all up in arms because they were referenced as working outside the CDC guidelines, which were, quote, standard of care. A guideline is not standard of care. These were very experienced and still are very experienced and, and well-known pain providers of care that do it safely, effectively, and uh, actually they're just plain freaking experts. They weren't doing anything outside of standard of care, but they got a, a troubling letter in the mail, and it was from a third party, but they're referencing these things, and they're referencing them incorrectly. So here's another letter, and the letter, it's online. You can you can get it. It's uh, pretty straightforward. I don't want to read the whole thing, but it's from the United States Surgeon General. That's Dr. Murthy, MD, MBA, and he wants help in solving an urgent health crisis facing America, and that's the opioid epidemic. Well, I know that, and I think everybody knows that opioids have been misused, abused, and diverted, and they're sought after, they're prized, uh, there's some people's income. They get these things, and it's uh, it's a bottle of money, and we understand that. And we only want to give medicines for the right reasons, with the diagnosis, remember the five rules, and we want to be responsible to adherence monitoring. I've talked about urine drug testing. I've talked about pill counts and that sort of thing. In a busy, busy primary care or orthopedic practice, uh, I get it. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to be uniform in that regard. And most controlled substances come out of primary care. 
uh, the orthopedists, et cetera, they do not come out of pain clinics. They do not come out of uh, these uh, uh, specialty uh, clinics like anesthesia and PM&R. They come out of primary care, and maybe rightfully so, because that's access, and patients should have access to care. But for chronic use of opioids, uh, the specialists should be involved. We're not always available in a community, but we should somehow get involved. And with telemedicine and the like, I think those barriers are going to be dropping. The letter asks us to do three things. Education. Well, if we're prescribing these medications, I hope we're educating ourselves. There needs to be maybe more of it. The American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians puts on a really good uh, training course with the certification in controlled substance management. American Society of Addiction Medicine, they do a good job as well. And that's opportunities for a physician to get out there, or even a uh, nurse practitioner, PA, or even office staff, to get out there and just see what it is about these controlled substances that exist can be modified and help hopefully, quote, turn the tide. That's what uh, the Surgeon General's letter is all about. But these courses aren't really attended very well. I've taught a number of them. They'll, we'll have 30 to 50 maybe in the audience. We should have three to 500 in the audience. We should be doing them either monthly or quarterly, and it should just be filled up. And that's that's the issue here. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in the educational side of controlled substance management. And you're right, it's not sexy. It's not sexy like learning a new procedure or going out and finding a new way to uh, stomp out some type of medical problem. When, in fact, it's not taken too seriously, I do it right. I know my practice does it right, or I don't think we have a problem in our neck of the woods. Well... You'd be really surprised. Okay, education. Second, screening. This is um, this isn't always practical. It's hard for us uh, to screen in a busy uh, primary care setting or orthopedist. They just aren't set up for it. It requires collecting a sample of urine, for example, and then it requires sending it off uh, to a third party that uh, does a, a gas chromatography analysis, a specific analysis uh, like they'd use in a crime lab, and it requires a few days. And we can use these little point-of-care cups, but they aren't very accurate. You can pick up benzolicanine, that's a metabolite of, of cocaine, and that's really accurate. Um, I sometimes don't even send it off for confirmation. You can pick up THC, you can pick up a few other things, but what are you going to do with it? Um, and that you have to have policies in place when you have an abnormal urine. And if they're already on controlled substances, what are you going to do next? Because you can't abruptly discontinue them. And if you know they're diverting, well, what are you going to do? Most states say you give patients 30 days worth of medicine so they can find another doctor and you see them for emergencies. Well, pain isn't an emergency and it's usually chronic. And I say cancer pain is, um, some cancer pains. I say some other real distinct uh, pains like sickle cell. Yeah, yeah, we get that. But it's chronic uh, low back pain and that sort of thing. But here, you got somebody that's dependent on opioids. Not addicted, but dependent. And they may have some level of tolerance, so you just don't switch around drugs. Um, what do you do? You, you, you think they're having a problem, 
or they're diverting or a family member's taking their medicine or whatever the scenario is, the individual scenario, you have to have a plan. And most uh, offices do not, so they kind of shuffle it under the rug. I can tell you how often I hear, we don't do urine testing because I don't know, I don't want to know what's in there. In other words, vis-a-vis, eh, it's just marijuana. Yes, it's just marijuana. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Yes, it's there, but it's a Schedule One drug, which there's no current medical use at the federal level, uh, and therefore your DEA certificate is attached to that. What are you going to do? Well, the state says, say I can give it. Well, we've talked about this dilemma. Um, we have to get a policy in place. And say an older member of our uh, group doesn't want anything to do with these people that smoke marijuana or don't take their medicine like prescribed. But some of the younger guys are saying, that's no problem. That's no problem. If you aren't on the same page, it's, it's not like being in, in a law office. You're cross-covering for these people. You're taking call for folks. And therefore, you have to have the same philosophy and same culture. All right, third, uh, we should be leaders in shaping how the rest of the country uh, sees addiction and talking about it and treating it as a chronic illness. And how about this? I say this all the time, not a moral failing. I agree with that. Completely agree with that. It's a uh, problem and addiction is uh, treatable. It's like any other chronic illness. Sometimes you're just going to have it for a while, and your brain chemistry is is wired now. And uh, we look back and we see certain instances in their lives uh, or our lives when you look at your personal experience. And you say, you know, this is kind of where it all started, and this is why it kept going. And, yeah, I've got a family history of alcoholism. If your parents had alcohol problems, you're eight times more likely to have alcohol problems. So, okay, here's a letter. It's one page. It says a lot. You know, um, two million people in America have prescription opioid use disorder. It's probably much higher. Contributing to increased heroin use and the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. Maybe. Uh, I think that's multifactorial. Okay, so we have this letter, and uh, the CDC guidelines are leading the way. Let's just see what happens. Um, it got a lot of attention, and I think the community that sees a lot of pain is a little uncomfortable. But uh, I bet there will be some follow-up to this letter. At least I hope there is. And I hope all physicians at least read the letter and looked at the insert. Uh, the insert was, wasn't bad. It was um, common sense. And uh, sometimes we lose common sense in a busy practice because – the next patient is waiting, and the next patient is waiting, and the next patient is waiting, and it's so simple. The tip of the pin, connected to the arm, connected to the brain. Let's just do with a simple thing. It's easy to do. It's easy to fall in that trap. Okay, let, let's go on. I think I beat that letter up enough. Um, it actually is probably a good first step so that we can have the, I, I don't like saying this, conversation but it's a good first step to maybe uh, enlightening some physicians that have gotten a little lax and taking the easy road. It's a good first step to let um, those loose prescribers know that uh, there may be a new trend. So, all right, hats off uh, to Dr. Murthy. Uh, I 
I think that uh, intent is in the right place, and I hope the uh, trajectory goes where we want it to go. And that's in the patient's best interest, preserving access, emphasizing pain care, and some pain control with function emphasized and uh, keeping you know, presumptive assumptions and the fallacy of false generalization, such as 50 milligram equivalents or 90 milligram equivalents, uh, as those are standard of care. They are not. They are guidelines. Let's look at them in that way. Redemption. All right. What is redemption? Well, I, I know what the definition of redemption is, or you can wiki it. That's fine. But uh, redemption goes across uh, this blurred line in my practice and in so many uh, physicians' practices that see addiction, they see depression, and they see pain, or pain, addiction, depression, PAD. They see this. Uh, they see redemption as an integral and key part of making somebody well, making somebody whole, making somebody healthy, healthy from a psychological refreshment standpoint, from a lifestyle enhancement, and just from, a, just from quality of life indices, redemption. We are, we are flawed by definition of being human. We have all had moments, and we all will have moments that, first of all, um, didn't go our way, or we know we didn't do the right thing, or we wish we had done it differently. It, it, it doesn't matter. That's a roofing mirror. So what do we do about redemption? Okay, in my world, redemption in pain and addiction, as well as depression, we look at the underlying starts and i just briefly alluded to it we can look back in our life and say when did all this start and i kind of see it and if you start kind of writing it down over time it won't be an epiphany but you'll start understanding that you know i can see that pathway this is how i see it all right somebody comes to me and they have pain and over the course of their pain care they have a saying that everybody screws up and it's human nature, um, you know, if you have a, you know, a psychological anger over it, uh, you shouldn't see pain patients. You shouldn't see those with uh, addiction or depression. We all screw up, okay? Pain patients, they might screw up. They may take a little extra medicine. They buy something off the street. They have a dirty drug screen. Oops, I smoked a little marijuana. Uh, and all of a sudden, they're taking more medicine. They're gripped, and they they have developed this opioid use disorder. Okay, then the opioid use disorder uh, is documented. From there, they may be discharged from a practice, or they may be incarcerated, or they may have some legal issues. They may have some type of psychological problem um, be labeled uh, bipolar. They may be labeled as dysthymic. They may be labeled, labeled, labeled. What, it is, what is it there? It's called prejudicial treatment. We get a patient referred to us. We see in the chart they're discharged from two pain clinics. We see that uh, they took too much medicine. Their sister stole their medicine. Uh, their dog um, ate, ate all their medicine. Oh, by the way, bring me your dead dog. Um, and it 
would have gone down the sink. And I tried to save it, but they even bring me bottles that, like Tylenol that is all um, emulsified, and it's it's just amazing. <laughs> so this prejudicial treatment then says that in some practitioner's mind, I'm going to withhold treatment or I'm going to reduce treatment or this fallacy of some drugs are less problematic than others. I'm just going to give them tramadol. I'm not going to give them a pure opioid or they'll give them a gabapentinoid or they'll give them an NSAID. And in many cases, NSAIDs are probably more problematic than a properly managed opioid. Well, that leads to more pain, and that leads to desperation. Desperation in patients that are in pain can lead to action. And when you get to the action point, it's unfortunate that uh, it takes a turn. It can take a turn toward buying heroin or buying oxycodone on the street. Boom, there's a police officer there. It can lead to uh, further um, bad drug screens and further ejections from even primary care. Now, primary care is not taken care of. You might have hepatitis C, and you can't get anybody to take care of you. And it just starts the it just starts the spiral down. So, what do we do? We believe in people. We all screw up. Redemption. Okay. So start at a point of redemption as opposed to letting it become prejudicial, leading to more pain, to more desperation, desperation, and then to um, illegitimate action. Um, where do you stop it? Pain to opioid use disorder, stop it there. You can stop it there by, uh, by properly addressing it. And getting into people is it's counterintuitive. But it has been shown in studies is the wrong thing to do. Helping them understand answers with motivational interviewing, which is a whole other topic, or helping them understand how to help themselves stops it there. So it's so counterintuitive. You just want to get up and you just want to say, you idiot, don't you know you could have died? Um, It doesn't work. It never works. What works is helping them help themselves that stops that circular problem to prejudicial treatment to more pain to desperation and then to action we'll have a whole podcast on motivational interviewing and this is why it's so important that uh, when families want to do a quote intervention unquote they have a professional there they can't do it themselves because this uh, is a very clear, um, well-documented uh, point of, um, of success or no success. To get redemption, you must, and I mean must, stop the opioid use disorder leading to prejudicial, treat, prejudicial treatment, access to care issues, more pain, desperation, and action. This keeps people alive. And... You know, it's once again the fundamentals of uh, addiction or opioid use disorder. It is not a moral failing. It's just we all screw up. Acknowledge that. We all win. All right. So more on marijuana and cannabinoids. Okay. Let's call it what it is. 
If you're using it uh, recreationally, it's marijuana. If you're using it medically, it's cannabinoids. Okay. There's just some... Okay, a little bit of fun facts here. And this is this is important because the science is pretty damn good. And it's preclinical. It's um, animal models, but it looks pretty good. CB1 antagonist. What's a CB1? We name receptors, and we don't get too clever <laughs> for some reason. There's CB1, there's CB2, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a number of receptors in the body, and the CB1 receptor, or cannabinoid receptor 1, is very important. It has a lot to do with addiction of about everything except the LSDs and the hallucinogens. Amphetamines, opioids, benzodiazepines, pick it, pick it, name it. Uh, The CB1 receptor is really important, not only in agonism or promoting or antagonism or you know hopefully blunting the effects or the premonition that i'm going to become an addict of using opioids the cb1 receptor is more prevalent in a human than opioid receptors it's everywhere it's in the brain it's in the important parts of the brain so go figure we have receptors for cannabinoids so that means something it means um, that it has an action. Well, the CB1 receptor, if antagonized, decreases the potential for opioid use disorder, addiction, and uh, recurrence, or else you know, the failing of treatment. Uh, and it's a, a, a high point of interest. They did develop a drug to block the CB1 antagonist. And the animal studies saw this. They saw that the animals weren't acting right. Yeah, but they didn't have cravings and they uh, didn't relapse. And, you know, it was it was important to get this drug out, I guess, because they had so much money into it. Well, it was a disaster. <laughs> and so they yanked it off the market, I think, in 09, something like that. It was in Europe. It didn't ever get here. Right now, we don't have a CB1 antagonist, but that is going to be an important uh, future uh, drug development consideration. And the CB2, if it has an agonist or one that uh, makes it work, that's also protective. So CB1 antagonist, CB2 agonist. So here, here's some receptors that show some real promise. All right. So yes, marijuana, cannabinoid. We're over on cannabinoid side right now because we're talking medical issues, more medical issues. Uh, you know that, uh, yeah, uh, when you use marijuana or when we use cannabidiol, uh, a, a part of marijuana, there's THC and there's cannabidiol, um, it does help with pain. It's very synergistic. One plus one equals three with opioids. That is very important. Does marijuana cause pain relief? I don't know. I don't think so alone. Uh, it, it tends to work well with opioids, though, so we might be able to significantly diminish the opioid load. Does it help certain medical conditions? Cannabidiol, yes. It's a liquid form of uh, the important activator in marijuana. 
And it helps kids with seizures. It helps with nausea and vomiting and appetite. For those taking chemotherapy that have failed everything else, it can turn you around. We already have Marinol, but who wants to take a pill uh, if you're throwing up? Um, And we're going to see a lot of medical uses, real medical uses, for cannabinoids or from the plant that marijuana comes from. We get a lot of medicines from plants, a lot of medicine. So, you know, don't don't look at marijuana as some uh, some dopey plant that, uh, has, in my era, hippies smoked. Now, it's uh, it can be made medical grade and it can have clinical application, and it has promise. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> promise. Well, it means that uh, states where marijuana laws um, are on the books uh, are showing that there may be some epidemiologic links. Uh, Those states with marijuana laws laws have shown that uh, opioid-related deaths have dropped. Now, there's a multitude of reasons that could cause that. It's called multifactorial because epidemiology doesn't relate necessarily causation, cause and effect. It's relational, yes, but you can't be conclusive. Um, That's a fallacy of false generalization. But it's an interesting thing to look at. Now, we also know that when you get a law in place that legalizes something, and there's a perception that there's a medical application for this drug, that it destigmatizes it uh, to um, a problematic level. So you have um, uh, people thinking, well, alcohol is really bad to drink and drive. Oh, man, that's a, that's a bad thing. But, you know, smoking marijuana, I can drive. Actually, it's intoxicating. And uh, if you get THC to a certain level and you're a regular smoker and it's going to be in you for a while, where is the impairment? This is being looked at now, and it's being looked at uh, in simulators, and it's being looked at uh, as a a real question mark. Also, people say, well, it's a medicine now, so it must be okay, particularly kids. It must be okay. Okay. So isn't it interesting, I heard a doctor say, that uh, he heard this directly from a mother. Uh, well, my, my child would never drink and drive, but uh, he smokes marijuana, so I, I feel much better. Well, don't feel too good about that. Um, so there's a forecast, uh, and pregnancy, no question about it, do not smoke marijuana. Do not smoke marijuana. There's some pretty good evidence that... Uh, there's problematic uh, issues with the child in the in the future, uh, showing up after age four and the like. Um, some potentially irreversible brain changes in the adolescent, and I'm going to say in the uh, developing brain up to about age 30. I'll say 30, but it's probably it's probably variable uh, that um, y- that are not going to go- revert. They won't revert. You could be dropping IQ points, and you won't get them back. You could be uh, dropping uh, certain um, uh, brain activities that are so important to not only future emotion, 
uh, cognitive activities, and just reasoning. Not benign. So we're learning about it. We'll continue to update you about marijuana because everybody wants to know about marijuana. And it is an important point of uh, discussion. You know, we've got this war on drugs that's been a complete failure um, since, what, the 70s, I guess. Um, And we've spent billions of dollars, and not much is changing. And um, we still have cartels, and we still have uh, heroin and uh, all these uh, street drugs that uh, are uh, incredibly abundant, uh, particularly the opioids that uh, were obtained legally at one time. So uh, it's something we have to take into our own families because drug problems are a family problem, and we have to talk about them openly, and we have to get professional help when necessary. And be be real clear that if somebody's starting to use IV drugs or if um, – some of these potent drugs are being used, particularly by youth. Uh, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. You've got to get professional help. It takes one injection of a laced heroin uh, that can kill you. And we've seen that in a number of cities in the United States that had a potent opioid uh, linked to the heroin, and down they went. So... Okay, I think I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. Uh, rambled on here a little bit. But send me your questions, uh, paininformation.com, and thank you for all the positive input. And I uh, really appreciate it. So leave a review at iTunes, please, please, please. Uh, it really helps, um, helps keeps us visible, and other people can find it and tell your friends and tell your doctor and the like. And... Uh, you know, this is informational. I'm just here for information. You talk all of this over with the professional. If you have any questions about treatment, make it personal. Make it professional. Get some eyes on you. If you're worried about uh, problems and you need help, I've done a podcast on, on resources. Go to those resources. And uh, I'll tr- I'll, I'll, I'm going to put some more interviews up, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon.